0: This is just a quick little note. The following episode was recorded over two days. See, I had an ID10T error. The first time I recorded it in full, I inadvertently created a long period of static. So I took it down, uh, removed it, and I'm attempting to replace that portion, but it's going to be a tad different, obviously, and uh, republish it for you. So if you detect any inconsistencies, that's what was up. So without further ado, let's get on with it.
1: Hey, it's Seeking Plum. So I want to try something. Let's pretend that we are placed in a confined environment. Now you can define this place as any way you want, whether it's a caged prison or whether it's miles squared. Each person inside this environment has A biosynthetic patch on the back of their hand. It's bright red. What this patch is all about, why it's red, its relevance, anything about this, we have no idea. All we know is that the color red is bad, and it's our goal to move from red to blue, because once we do, we will receive riches untold, benefits and gifts beyond our imagining, and the respect and admiration of our peers and those around us. So to make that patch shift in color, there are certain things we have to do or not do and say and not say. No shade of purple will do, it has to be blue, bright blue. Except that it's pretty well impossible to get to blue. So the next best thing is to get near as close as possible. Individually, this sets us up for trying to achieve the next level the next shade of purple closer to blue, that bright blue. In turn, that kind of leads to this feeling of competition, and then judgment. Okay, <laughs> so I jumped back into Frederick Nietzsche's book, the Twilight of the Idols. Since it had been a while since I picked this book up, I flipped backwards a few pages to reread some things. He has some interesting ideas on religion and morality, and I'm not sure exactly where I stand on that. But when he's talking about morality, he says that one of the purposes is meant to improve men. He goes on to describe this improvement as a sort of taming, or almost breeding a different type of person. He also says, to call the taming of an animal its improvement is in our ears almost a joke. Whoever knows what goes on in menageries is doubtful whether the beasts in them are, quote, improved. They are weakened. They are made less harmful. They become sickly beasts through the depressive emotion of fear, through pain, through injuries, through hunger. And then he goes on to say it's no different with a tamed human. I thought this was interesting, and I was kind of intrigued, but I wanted to push it a little. If he thinks that morality and religion are meant to tame me, if they didn't exist, would I run amok? At first, I thought this is a really difficult question to answer because I've been brought up in a culture, a society that is built on morality. I was brought up in a home that was very religious. So a lot of these ideas have been ingrained in the way that I think and I approach the world. I mean think about it. Bad guys often wear black, good guys often wear white. There's this idea of good and bad and and right and wrong. It's everywhere. Okay, so there's no avoiding that. I'm going to look at everything through that lens. So for some time I have said that I believe morality is based on empathy. But when I was thinking about it today, I think there's more to it than that. Yeah, I think that plays a role. But I think to some extent we are taught some of our morals as we grow up. But I think as we continue to go through life, then we refine those morals, how we perceive them, what we want to keep, what we want to refine. So I began wondering if our learned morality and even Our refined morality, which is affected by our ecology, if those things create a kind of cage or confined space, as I first described when I started talking to you today, that begins to, quote, tame us, as Nietzsche says, do these insubstantial, intangible ideas make us sickly or weak? Do we not fully live because we're hanging on to them? When I think about morals as uh, insubstantial, you know, the, the intangible philosophies or ideas or a structure or something that we follow that sort of keeps us in line so that we don't, quote, run amok, then I could see it as being this type of, Uh, invisible cage, right? I think there's a difference between, I mean, mean, obviously, there's a difference between the laws uh, uh, that are required for society to operate effectively and efficiently for us all to exist together and what we might morally believe individually. But within that society, if we start holding each other accountable to our personal morals, then it comes back to that idea of of who has achieved whatever moral rung, right, from moving red to blue, even though it's essentially immaterial, and it becomes divisive, and there's more and more judgment. Today, if you are not righteously angry enough about this issue or that one or you aren't being the right kind or right way of being an ally or I think I mentioned this before when and it still stands out in my mind it was that Jimmy Kimmel lie witness news and I can't even remember what they were asking them about it was I think it was some fake show they asked them if they watched it and if they were angry when when some celebrity said this or that, and because each person wanted to make sure they gave the right answer, they lied in every respect. They felt they had to, and to some extent, this doesn't necessarily fall into morality. This is more along the lines of fitting in, but, but how much of our morality is shaped because we want to fit in, you know? The more I thought on this topic today, the more I realized I was focusing too much on one side of this, and that was the idea of going going bad, going evil, you know, running amok. And I think it's because as an atheist, when I run into somebody who says, how could you leave your faith, there's always this this they, they always assume and believe that now there's nothing stopping me from committing murder and so on. Yes, I've actually had that said to my face. <laughs> but um I think that those individuals miss this point. And so in trying to defend myself in my imaginary conversation with them in my head, I missed the point of this whole, you know, thought provoking conversation in my head as well that is it's not about how not to run amok or whether it will happen or not it's about the living fully deeply living does morality or religion hamper that I'm going to do my very best to stay away
0: from the topic of religion, because I have very strong and probably verbose opinions about that topic and whether it limits the ability or hampers the ability to fully, deeply live. But let's look at the topic of morality. So if you've been listening along for a while, you know I've been also, amongst my other books, reading uh, Sapiens. But I've put it down for a bit because I was finding reading about the past, comparing it to now, and potentially the future, a bit depressing. But I was thinking about some of the things I read about in relation to this whole conversation of morality. Now, just to be clear, Harari doesn't talk about morality with respect to any of this. So these are some of my own crazy thoughts, okay? But he did say that when language came about, that's when belief in gods came, when storytelling came, and when we were better able to organize into larger groups. I know we can't pinpoint when exactly, but I wonder if it came about when language did, this whole idea of right and wrong, what we should and shouldn't do or say. I know we can't answer when morality was introduced, but can we ask the question of why the social construct of morality came to be? We always frame the idea of morals about doing what's right, but I think largely the way that's done is through some framework of shame. And shame only happens in relation to other people either because the majority see this act as shameful or because we have been exposed as having done something that the majority sees as shameful or we're worried about being exposed, uh, even if it's not necessarily something that would be, you know, considered awful. But it's all about whether it's our personal shame, that doesn't exist without exposure to someone else. And you might say, well, I do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, because it's what I want to do. But who told you it was right, and how did you come to that place? And even if, quote, morals didn't exist, wouldn't you do it anyway? So if that's the case and you would do it anyway, do you need morals? In part, I'm playing devil's advocate, and in part, I'm trying to think through these questions. Frankly, I don't think there's any escaping morality or morals. I think that our minds and the way that we operate with each other and within society and all of these things have worked within the framework of the idea of morality for so long that there's simply no breaking away from it. We can't even we can't even imagine what what the world would be like, what our lives would be like without the concept of morality. And if we do attempt it, I think often it ends up looking like a bastardization of what it would really be like. Because I don't think an absence of morality is really a free for all of you know Quote, evil. I don't think that's what it looks like. I'm beginning to wonder if we even need any kind of framework to encourage us to do good. In the beginning, we created this imaginary space. But if we consider that space to be the world, that biosynthetic patch on the back of our hand is actually a visible representation of our morality for everyone to see. The role of shame takes on something entirely different here. And because we know that perfection is impossible, we know that we will never, ever reach the purest blue. Yet for whatever reason, we compete with each other over who is more moral. And if it's not a competition, then we sit in judgment. And even as I say these words, and I think about this, I feel shame. Funny, isn't it? I have been thoroughly, thoroughly tamed.
2: Hey Rhonda, it's Jared. I'm calling about the morality conversation that um, you posted. So I think morality is something that is emergent and communities uh and all of the structures like government religion they kind of they come later as a way to like codify it and they allow moral codes to scale because they create a consistent way to transmit a story that everybody can agree on i don't think that these moral codes are necessarily aimed at individual flourishing they're more about the flourishing of the greater community And I know, and I also don't think that they are, there's anything universal. Everything kind of, everything is kind of local based on, you know, just factors in the environment where these ideas emerge. So I'm with you on the idea that without the element of social pressure or shame or whatever, it's difficult to know exactly where our lines lie The interesting thing to me is, now that we aren't restricted to our local communities, and, you know, we might, we have these moral intuitions maybe that aren't in line with what, you know, the local, you know, the people around us believe. And because we have this ability to connect across time and space now, um, through communication technologies of all sorts, There's this ability to reach out and connect with people who have similar moral intuitions that might not be like the mainstream ideas. So the implications of something like that can be pretty pretty big. Like some really bad ideas can pick up steam. (laughs) Ideas that we've already sort of tried out and tested out historically. can can gain, can gain steam again because you can find that confirmation and that social support for almost any moral intuition that, that you want. And that community can give you a sense of righteousness that, you know, can turn into some interesting things, good or bad. I mean, it can move things forward, but sadly it can move things back very quickly, I believe.
0: This is very fascinating to me, Jared. I think I got hung up on a very narrow definition of morals or morality. That if ethics were an attempt at something as close as possible to objective and outside ourselves, then I was perceiving as morality as more subjective and inside ourselves. I mean, obviously, if it's subjective, right? But I like where you've taken this and how you've described it. I could also see some of these regions with their own moral frameworks overlapping with each other. And I think you hit on something pivotal when you talked about people reaching across time and space for pieces of their moral framework. To some extent, I think that shame still plays a role with these individuals because they they stiff arm and they're very angry when certain terms and labels are used uh against them or placed on them so a part of them realizes there is something wrong with you know x behavior but for some reason they've determined y behavior even though it's exactly identical to X, is somehow okay. So somehow, like if, if we can find a way for them to, to equate X and Y, then maybe there's hope. When you describe morality and a moral code and so on in these uh, contexts, I can understand and see a purpose for them. Because it's it's for a greater purpose. It's so that we can live in a society with each other, or even within our smaller regions or communities. Right. So maybe morality is was never about the individual. Hmm, that that is something that I hadn't considered yeah thanks jared for for calling in These are some interesting things that i that I hadn't even looked at or considered and it's an interesting way of of turning this around and and i I find it very interesting so thank you
3: Christina is seeking plum. This is Reggie, your weekend watcher, and I was listening to your segments on morality and the origins of morality, and it actually reminded me of Patton Oswalt's perfectly, like, perfectly sculpted comedic bit, Sky Cake. You know, go to YouTube, look up Sky Cake. If you don't laugh, man, we're gonna, you're gonna need like a hug or something. Uh, and, and like, I love it because it's a great comedic bit, but also. Uh, it does chafe against me philosophically because I believe in more of like a Hobbesian type equality, at least it's like referred to a state of nature. And by Hobbesian, I mean like this: like, hey, yeah, we are more or less equal, and that is because you know none of us is so spectacular. Not one of us is so spectacular in brains or brawn or uh, influence that we can overcome everybody else all together. So we're all kind of stuck in a situation where we have to work together with one another. At least it's in that state of nature, which we can't even prove ever existed. Now, mind you, I like this version of equality because I think that it promotes us working together, being cool with one another. Uh, But uh, I love Pat Oswalt because he allows me to advocate for Sky Pie. It's Sky Pie. Just letting you know. Do the thing.
0: Reggie. It's Sky Baklava. (laughs) <laughs> okay. No hugs needed. I let out a few belly laughs. Okay, that was good. For those of you not familiar with this piece, <laughs> I am going to put a link in the comment section of this segment, and you really should check it out. <laughs> it is hilarious, and it's not very long. And you're right, Reggie. It's almost like I had... It's almost like I had seen it before I did it or like he had done it for my pieces and neither one of those things happened. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, hilarious.